I remember when we did Trigger Nobody last year, you said to me that you thought something good would come from it. I can't actually believe... Well, I can actually. <laughs> now you can. Back then you didn't fucking believe me, did you? Well, <laughs> when you said that, there was no way in this world I could have envisaged what came... Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. It doesn't get any more honest or fascinating than the returning guest we have for you today. I can't tell you how happy we are to have him back. Chris McGlade, the comedian, actor and all sorts of other great things. Welcome back, man. Welcome. Yeah, it's been great to, to be asked back. Yeah, well, it's a, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, I'll remind people. Looking like, looking like Lawrence Llewellyn Boyne. You do, mate. <laughs> you, you, you bang on about the working class, but you've come dressed very, very middle class today. Well, you see, the thing is, I've just been in uh, this bozer up the road from Millwall, right? And I've only been to Millwall once with the borough, like many years ago. And if you would have said to me when I was in Millwall with the borough match before that parts of this area of London would be it would end up being gentrified, right? And I said, go and fuck off, right? But I was in this bozer there and it's all your main, like middle class, upper middle class, Tabithas and Joshes with the half mass jeans and the fucking trainers and all that, you know what I mean? And uh, I thought to myself, wow, Millwall's becoming, the Isle of Dogs is going to become gentrified. Can you believe that? The world has changed, my friend. Uh, but it has changed in good ways as well. One of the reasons yeah. we wanted to have you back. Because mm -hmm. I'll remind people, last time you were on the show, uh, and we got such incredible feedback. People really <sighs> loved what you had to say. It was because you'd had a show cancelled from the Soho Theatre. And you really were kind of your wit's end in terms of trying to get your voice out there, get your message out there, get your comedy out there. Uh, quite a lot has changed since. Right, so like... <clears throat> I'm a spiritual bloke, me, right? And um, and I work on art. And um, and I, I honestly think, right, like like years and years ago, it's not think this this actually happened to me. Years and years ago, when I was uh, living in in a place called Hinderwell near near Whitby, I was at the absolute. Well, I thought that was the absolute bottom. I couldn't get a gig. I was like, like like six, seven months in between gigs and all this. And I, I run off this, this like inner clock, do you know what I mean? Like an inner, inner voice all the time. And I just like follow it really. And uh, it, call it intuition or whatever. But this thing said like, you know, these times when you haven't got anything, right? Don't kick back, embrace it. Because when your break comes and it will come, right? it will make it even more unbelievable. And and that is the position that I found myself in uh, last year. You know, I mean, last year was... The, I've, I've had some hard times. Maybe it's not as hard as other people in their lives, you know. But last year for me was me scraping the bottom of my, like, existence. Do you know what I mean? Like, I... I uh, I completely let myself go. After the first lockdown, then you had a little break, and then we went into the second lockdown, and I really went to a place that I'll never go back to again, hence why I've got to <laughs> think, I'm never going to go back there again. I let myself go. I was drinking three or four bottles of whiskey a week, 
I'd grown this massive beard. My hair was like Moses. I mean, fair enough, I couldn't get into a hairdresser. Nobody could. But I lost my motivation. I lost everything, you know. And um, and it got to the point where I woke up one night, and I was quite sober, actually. And it was two in the morning, and I, and I put a belt around my neck, right? Not to actually do it, right? I just wanted to see what it felt like. I mean, in 2019, I tried to do it when my wife and I parted company. And I actually tried it that time. But this time, when I put the belt around my neck last year, I I didn't want to do it. I just want to, I wanted to see what it felt like. And I think that was scary because it was like I was going down a tunnel. I was like slipping further and further into it. And I was like, it was like slippy on the inside. I couldn't get out. And I spoke to this, lad of power and who'd actually done it and he'd actually done it and anybody god was good and he was found <clears throat> and he said to me if you've done that then you've got a massive problem and i said why is that like and he said because i did the exact same thing i tried it well just tightened it to see what it felt like at the same time of night you know and so i thought right okay and there's a problem there obviously the problem there and I thought that was the lowest point of my life. And the lowest point of my life actually wasn't in the lowest point of my life. I have one daughter and two stepsons. But my daughter is like my blood and uh, she's my world. And uh, I went on to a house and her partner's grandma, <clears throat> who sadly passed away a week, a week ago. I mean, obviously I, I, I know her well, knew her well. And she came in the kitchen. She didn't recognise me for an, for a couple of seconds. I said, it's me, like, you know. And uh, she said, well, I, I didn't even recognise you, Chris, you know. So we had a cup of tea and everything. And then as I was leaving my daughter's house, about half an hour later, I was close to the front door. And in the kitchen, I heard my daughter say to her partner's grandma, I'm ever so sorry about my dad. You know, he's just having a few problems. Well, I absolutely, I left the house and I got into the car and I broke my fucking heart. I absolutely broke my heart that my daughter had had to make an apology for me. I mean, I always wanted to be like the dad that, you know, I mean, you can say, there's two ways of saying that's my dad, isn't there? <clears throat> you, can say, you can have somebody saying, that's my dad. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, you go, oh, that's my dad. Do you know what I mean? And I always wanted the first. I always wanted to be, that's my dad. And to think that my daughter was making excuses for me, it just broke my heart. I mean, I can control, because I'm in a good place now, I can control the emotion where, like last year when we did this thing, I was in a really hard position and I couldn't control the emotion. And I was in the car and I always remember I was crying. And this has happened to me once before, when my daughter was about five, I had no money, I had no gigs. I was absolutely at my wit's end. And I was in bed with my girlfriend at the time and I was breaking my heart, like absolutely breaking my heart, crying. And in the tiniest voice, I just said, please God help me. And, and in an instant, I stopped crying and I just sat up and I said, everything's gonna be all right. And the following day, an agent phoned and said, I've got a couple of gigs for you. And off I went again. And it was that 
kind of moment again last year when I was in my car outside my daughter's house. I was breaking my heart and I just said, just in a tiny voice, please God help me. And I realised how that was the absolute bottom for me personally, that was the bottom of my life because I'd, I'd had everything taken away from me. My wife had left me, my dad had been murdered. Uh, I was in his house with only a chair and a bed and everything, right? Nothing, no money, no gigs, nout. And about two or three minutes later, all of a sudden I thought, fuck this. Get yourself off to contemporary hairdressers in Whitby for a cut and colour, <laughs> right? Because I get the old band, it's Paul McCartney Brown at the moment, like, you know. <laughs> but I get like a base five, we'll call it base five, they call it. And I phoned up the hairdressers and I said, right, book me in for a haircut. And uh, I go there for the crack as much as anything else because I get on great with all the lashes. And that's what started the bounce back. I remember putting a post on Facebook about it. You know, this is my new Barnet. This is my new haircut. I'm back kind of thing. And strangely enough, that's how it started. It started with a haircut and a shave. Um, they wouldn't shave me in, in the in the hairdressers because of the COVID and stuff. But I went to my daughter's house and I shaved all my whiskers. She was playing foot because it was there all clogging the sink and everything, you know. And then the Soho Theatre, they cancelled me out and I did the live thing on Facebook uh, much to the annoyance of the promoter and, and his team but I felt as though I had to say something I didn't do it to sort of like shit stir or you know anything like that <clears throat> and of course that's when Comedy Unleashed came in for me and uh, so they said right we'll put you in the backyard well that sort of like ushered in the next phase because mm. I'd cleaned myself up. And the next phase was was me um, starting to rehearse Forgiveness again. Your show? Yeah, because I'd, I'd, that was the show that I was going to put on at the Soho Theatre. They cancelled me out. Comedy Unleashed said, we'll do it at Backyard. So I thought, right, it's got to be ready. Especially when, and this, I couldn't believe this, right? We sold out in two days, 300 tickets, boom, gone. And I'm like, wow. You know what I mean? I, I was like the biggest comedy night in London on the, I think it was the 3rd of October or 12th of October, I can't remember. No, 11th of October. And uh, and, I, and so it had to be right. And so I started walking again because I hadn't walked for a while. I'd been doing a lot of walking when I walked to London and everything, you know, against lockdown. And and I started walking again and going, talking to myself, walking around the streets of Red Car and stuff, going through the gig, going through the gig. So that was up and running. Then a couple of, Little spots came in. They got me confidence back, you know. They did Wanstead Comedy for uh, John Fentman. It's a good but, guy, uh, John. Yeah, he's a smashing lad. I've got a lot of time for him. And um, and, and so that, that happened. And then we actually did the gig at uh, at uh, Backyard. And, that, well, you lads were there. I mean, mm. it was off the scale, you know. And, There's um, a lot of trigonometry fans there. I'd seen your interview with us. Well... I, 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 for me, I mean, I remember when we did Trigonometry last year, you said to me that you thought something good would come from it. I can't actually believe. Well, I can actually. <laughs> now you can. Back then you didn't fucking believe me, did you? Well, 
You see, this is the essence of faith, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? And the, yeah. the essence of belief as a spiritual man, I realise. Because my, my faith and belief in, in a lot of things um, has been tested. It's like a like an elastic band, like pull, 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 pull. Is it going to snap? But when you said that, there was no way in this world I could have envisaged what came. I, I, after we did Backyard, I did another performance at the Albany for my agent, Michael. And that was great. People who'd been to Backyard the night before came again. Fantastic. Uh, I went home and I thought, right, what am I going to do now? Sick of living like a fucking tramp. I was like living like a homeless person in, in this house, do you know what I mean? I thought, right, and I, got, I, I, I took the money from the Comedy Unleashed gig. I thought, right, I'm going to buy some stuff for my house because all he had was a chair and a bed, right? A wardrobe. And uh, and it was minging. I hadn't cleaned it or anything. Absolutely minging. So I started that process off. And that took a couple of months, two and a half months. And come December, I had my house uh, back on blob. It was like immaculate, do you know what I mean? Carpets down. People, great. I'd put a post on Facebook. I'd put a post on Twitter. Just saying, look, I need to buy some things cheap. I've got the money from from backyard. People saying, hey, Chris, have this fridge freezer. It's been in my garage ages. Just needs a freezer. Like, Chris, have this microwave. Hey, Chris, my mum died. Uh, I've got a memory foam mattress and bed for your grand when your grandkids come. The the kindness was unbelievable. Didn't want anything for it, you know. I, like, and that that just like blew me away. So my house was up and running my comedy was up and running I was like back in the land of the living I had my grandchildren stay with me with a mum halfway through December that was just the fucking best we all had Christmas hats on and we had Naughty Elf and all this you know that was unbelievable my best mate Mags came down the house Margaret Colonino, she cried when she saw the house. She said, I'm so proud of you. And then fuck me. <laughs> the day before Christmas Eve, I got a call. Are you tired of using bulky old wallets, giving you a bulge where you don't want it to be? My old wallet was massive, so it brought all the ladies to the yard, which was a huge distraction and got in the way of my esteemed work on trigonometry. Ridge wallets have an incredible solution for you. This is mine, sleek, stylish, and with an industrial look to it. It can fit 12 cards with cash on the back using a clip like this one or a strap. We've got one for the whole team. I've got one, Francis has one, even our producer Anton has one, but he's from Liverpool, so he flogged his on the black market. The great thing about Ridge is that they give you a lifetime guarantee, which means if you want, you can have only one wallet for the rest of your life. Ridge are so confident in the quality of their product, they will give you 45 days to test drive their wallets. That means you can get the wallet, use it, and if you don't like it, you can return it within 45 days. Because Ridge is such great guys, they're gonna give you 10% off and free worldwide shipping and returns. To take advantage of this incredible offer, go to ridge.com forward slash trigger. That's ridge.com forward slash trigger and use our special code, which is of course, trigger. The day before Christmas Eve, I got a call 
from Comedy Unleashed. How are you doing? I said, I'm all right, like. Have you got anything planned for forgiveness? No. Oh, well, uh, we'd like to take you on a tour. I'm like, you're joking, aren't you? I said, no, no, we maybe it's just a small tour, six nights. I said, oh, okay, then. Well, well, line us up with your agent, Michael, and we'll get it sorted. So I said, okay. So the following day, I thought they'd leave it till after Christmas. Christmas Eve, Michael phoned. Comedy and Lisa have been in touch. They want to put you on a tour, six nights, Newcastle, Leeds, Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham, London. That sounds great. That's fantastic. You know what I mean? What a Christmas present. But that wasn't it. Because on Christmas Day, <laughs> I never go on Twitter, but I went on Twitter on Christmas Day and somebody had sent me a message. And this person said, uh, I like what you say. And I'm like, do you? <laughs> and they said, yeah, we do, yeah. And um, I'd like to make you a donation. So they said, um, I'd like to uh, make a donation. Have you got a PayPal account? I said, no. Well, I have, but I don't use it. So I gave them on Christmas Day my bank details, right? And I went for my Christmas dinner at my daughter's house and I was playing football with my grandson in the front garden. I was thinking, you fucking dickhead, you've given somebody, right? It's <laughs> <laughs> complete stranger. Like, your bank details, what's going on? So I got back in touch and I said, look, I don't know who you are. And they said, oh, we're going to put, I'm going to put this much money in your account. And I'm like, hi, okay then. Because <laughs> right, it was, you know, quite a hefty sum. Got to after bank all day Monday, nothing had gone in the account. I said, look, yeah. Now, I know that social media is full of twats, really, right? And I know people take the piss, right? So they sent me this screenshot, right, of the bank transfer. Well, I got up on a Wednesday morning, I checked my account, and it had gone in. So I messaged back, and I, and I was at Dunelm buying a frying pan, right? <laughs> <laughs> And I said, you know how to party. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Finally got money, get a frying pan. Get a frying pan. And I said, uh, look, I'm ever so sorry for doubting you, right? Um, but the money's gone in and I, and I can't thank you enough. So this person said, well, it's time for me to come forward now. So I'm like, okay. And uh, basically this person is in the medical profession in a foreign country and they'd seen me on trigonometry and they said uh, I love your message of forgiveness and uh, and I want to put you on a tour right well it wasn't going to be a six night tour they said I want to put you on a 30 night tour of forgiveness and I'm going to pay for everything and I'm going to uh, make sure that you get um, an allowance every night to pay for your travel and everything else and uh, and I have all the faith and belief in you in the world and like I'm sat outside Dunelm right <laughs> with <laughs> fucking frying pan in my hand <laughs> right and I'm thinking Michael ain't going to believe this so I, I phoned Michael and I told him right Long story short, within about five days, six days, like a five-figure sum 
and going into my agent's account and my account to pay for this tour and everything that we needed. And uh, and for me, like, that's just, these things don't happen. But they do happen. And I realised when it happened that that little inner voice that I had, maybe it was about 2014, 2015, when I was like a gig once every six or seven months mm. when it said, you know, embrace these times now when you haven't got anything because when it comes, it's going to make it even more unbelievable. Mm. Well, it fucking was. And I mean, we're going on a 30-night tour. There's 30 dates and it's going to be England, Scotland, Ireland and Wales. Can't wait to do... Um, can't wait to do Belfast because that's where my dad's side of the family were. And of course, taking the message of forgiveness to Belfast where they've had all the troubles, for me, it's just a massive thing. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, and I'm going on tour. It's, it's just it's just everything. That's a, what an incredible story. Absolutely. And you see, I don't have any expectations of it, you know. I... I I don't have one expectation of that tour because let's be real. I'm a nobody, right? I haven't had any television credits. I don't have any great following. I don't have like fans or, you know, like massive. I mean, I have my Facebook friends and everything. 5,000 people on one account and I think 5,000 people on, on the comedy thing. But I mean, you know, I, I haven't got like a massive following. I mean, there's there's people with television profile struggling to sell out tours and stuff. So, I have hopes, but I have no expectations of of the tour. But there again, you see, it doesn't. It's almost like it doesn't matter. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Whether the whether each show gets one person in. And obviously, I, w I would want more than that. But if it gets one person in or the room's sold out, it's almost like it doesn't matter. Because I've realised when I wrote Forgiveness, I can see now, right, that the whole thing was kind of like, it's almost like meant to be, if you know what I mean. Mm. I mean, when I first wrote Forgiveness, I'd written like a two-hour show and I realised I'd written a two-hour show. And my friends said to me, Andy and Maggie had said, well, you know, what are you going to do? Because you only got like 55 minutes at Edinburgh. And I just said, well, you know, hopefully I'll take it, take it into a theatre and like do the full thing. And that's what's happening. Do you know what I mean? So all the stuff that I'd written that for me is very pertinent to the story and everything else, make it a two-hour show with a break. It's now starting to happen. And I just feel as though whatever happens with the tour, it's meant to fucking happen. Do you know what I mean? And I don't think it's going to be the end of it. I think, I think it's, I just think it's, it's, it's going to get bigger and bigger, you know? And I, I, I by, just by virtue of the fact, the way things have gone, you know? Yep. Yeah. Just coming straight out the blue, you know, what are the chances of somebody in the medical profession in a foreign country watching your program thinking, I like this man mm. and what he has to say. And yeah, the world does need more forgiveness. And you see, the person who's backed me financially for the tour 
they said to me just two days ago, they don't have any financial expectations at all. They're not bothered. You know, I want them to have their money back. I want to make it, you know, get enough people in to pay this person back. But they have no expectations of that. They said mm. all they're bothered about is the message of forgiveness. You know, and I and I look at the way the world is at the moment, and and I think that's that's what's needed most of all. Do you know what I mean? To me, you know what it shows. It shows the power of honesty, Chris. Because when I, sh I I saw your show, it was one of the first previews you ever did at John Fentiman's gig at yeah, Wanted yeah. Comedy. And Constantine took me along and said, you've got to go to this, you've got to watch this, this is brilliant. And, and he, I, you you weren't exactly going out and seeing loads of shows at the time, No, because you? I was gigging six nights a yeah, week. I was, busy. Yeah, I was busy. I was, and he went, no, no, but you've got to see it. And it was the third, I think it was the third preview that you did, third or fourth, certainly no more than that. And what struck me was the power of your words, the honesty, the integrity behind it. And in our industry, let's be honest, we don't really get a lot of that. No. Well, I think the industry, I, w I would never slag any comedian off, ever. I fucking would. No. <laughs> Do you want to know why? Do you want to know why I would never slag any comedian off? Is because it's too hard a job. It is a hard job. Yeah. It's too hard a job. And for me, anybody, whether they've been going 30 years, 40 years, five weeks, right, you have the balls to stand up in front of an audience and try and make them laugh, right? And you've got my respect. End of. You know, Lawrence Olivier, I remember seeing him on, on Parkinson years and years ago, and Parkinson said, if you hadn't been an actor, what would you have been? He said, I would love to be a stand-up comedian. Do you know what I mean? Because of all the entertainment genres stand-up comedy is the most difficult because you go into a room and you don't know what people have done that day or what kind of lives they've got or whatever, you know, and yet, you know, to make people who are in a low frame of mind laugh is a massive thing. It's a very powerful thing. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't sort of like decry or denounce any comedian. Do you know what I mean? There's certain comedians I like, like to watch and there's other ones Granted, my interest in comedy isn't the same as when there was people like Mortimer Wise on the go and stuff, because mm. and Tommy Cooper, they were like comedy heroes of mine. I could watch Eddie Izzard all day long, but not laugh, but love him. Do you know what I mean? I said that. I said that to him when when he came. He took me uh, for supper. Went for supper in, in his. He's got part shares in his club in london and after me last night at the soho theater i got invited along to see his his gig he'd been running all these marathons and he'd done this show in uh the leicester square theater and we had the same promoter mick and uh and we sat down and ate and everything and um and i said you know like i don't laugh really at you and he, he got that because he's well you're a comedian yourself and he got that you understood i wasn't being rude but i said like you know but i could watch you all night. Mm. I could actually, you know what I mean? But I, I feel as though there's a lot of comedians these days, they, they don't, they don't use comedy perhaps as they should be. There's so many things that we should be speaking out against. And it seems like a lot of comedians are all too bothered about just being safe in case it affects the work. The career. 
or, yeah. or the, their ability to get up. And, and you see, that's the thing <clears throat> with me. I mean, the comedy circuit's done me... I mean, basically, I'm a working men's club comedian following the talk double and the bingo and strippers and all this, you know, and stag do's and stuff like that, you know. The glam stuff. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, I learned my trade and stuff, you know, but but I've always sort of like pushed myself as a co- co- comedian. Yes. And I've always got off my ass and I've I've gone on the comedy circuit and I've always gone down great on the comedy circuit, but it's never been really more than open mic spots. And, you know, like 10 minutes here or five minutes here. I mean, it's it's crackers, really, you know what I mean? It's uh, For me, it's a, a exploitation in a way. I mean, I remember being at Camden Comedy for Ivor Dembina a few years back now and there was a young, young lad there, young comedian. He was trying to get a, uh, a, a comedian's union going and I, because he said it was exploitative. And, and I agree, do you know what I mean? Mm. They, it is. They, you know, you're getting like two comedians... Like in the middle, doing ten minutes each for now. You got like you got like a comedian at the start doing maybe eighty quid or hundred quid, and you got your headliner, wherever he gets two hundred quid or whatever it is. You know what I mean? And um, and so I think it's exploitative, and, and a lot of comedians would actually like to get in the store and stuff, the comedy store or whatever. They'd actually pay, probably pay <laughs> if mm. if they could get a decent spot at the comedy store. You know. But they're not, comedy is, I don't feel as though comedy's like challenging as it, as it should. But you know why that is. I mean, look at your own story. You, you were just telling us what a life is, what life can be for somebody who wants to talk about things, who wants to push that envelope one gig every seven months. Yeah. That, that's why they're not doing it, man. Yeah, but I mean. You know, I agree with you. Well, but, but you see, the thing is that this is another thing. I mean, I, I I reached my my end point with the comedy circuit in 2019. I mean, I was I've been in comedy now for 34 years. I've been in like the, I was in the main comedic part in Billy Elliot in the West End, right? I played at the Comedy Store in Hollywood on the main stage with Dane Cook and Harlan Williams and uh, Bobby Lee and all these guys, right? Uh. I've done like loads of things in comedy, played every kind of audience that you can think of. Not not just like that comedy circuit, you know. I remember working with Alfie Brown one time. Got a lot of time for Alfie. I think he's a great comedian. Do you know what I mean? I worked with him. We did. A, I'd been working for the Black Watch over in Scotland and I flew back and on the Sunday, him and I went to Exeter to do a gig like, you know. And I mean, he was everything that I'm. I'm not in comedy really. But like he watched me and we got back in because he was driving. He got back in the car <clears throat> after the gig and I had a great gig. And uh, he said, uh, I've got something to fucking say before I set off. And I thought, here we go. <laughs> here we fucking go. And he went, that was seriously fucking brilliant, Chris, right? You know what I mean? And you shouldn't be in that position. And I, I was like, wow, you know what I mean? Because he was with a, a, a big agent and stuff like that. You know, it was a massive compliment for me. But this is what Francis was trying to say, Chris, is we've had however many hundred people on the show now. People don't get that response that you got. And that's what he was talking about when he was talking about 
your honesty and your authenticity, which also comes through in your comedy. Because we went to see your show once you'd come on the show and there was a load of trigonometry fans there and whatever. And that's what people are responding to because you're being honest. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's that's just how how I am. Yeah. Yeah. But, but in, the not... wor- in the world that where very few people are that way, it stands out. Is that what you were? I was going to say, but that's not how most comedians yeah. are, Chris. Yeah. You know, it's that old David Mamet line. You know, you, you, you love the theatre, so I'm sure you love Mamet. Words that come from the heart go to the heart. Mm. They hit. They hit hard. Mm. Whilst words that have no meaning or are disingenuous, they don't hit because there's, there's no emotion behind them. There's no truth. The thing, the thing is, when I, when I write something and I perform it, right, then it has to make me laugh first and foremost so I have to feel it and if I don't feel it I can't that's the thing with me for me to put my comedy across properly I have to feel it if I don't feel it then I can't I can't put it across I can't be like fake do you know what I mean probably my best pal on the circuit of ever on the comedy circuit was a guy called Bobby Knoxall who in the 60s and 70s was tipped to be like massive you know yeah, like he was Sunderland's answer to Bobby Thompson and he always said to me, the most important thing in comedy is to be honest because an audience can spot a fucking fake a mile off. You know what I mean? And that's basically what I've tried to do my whole career. Now, some people, that might piss some people off, but my my, my cut-off line, like I was saying, was 2019 because I'd done all the... I, I'd written to all and emailed all the top agencies, the Off the Curbs and the Avalons. And you get the same, you know, thanks but no thanks. And then, you, you know, and then you, get back, you get back again. No, no, it's okay, we don't want it. Yeah, but I've done this and I, no, it doesn't, doesn't matter what you've done. We're not interested, like, you know. And I've done all the open spots and then the open spots again. And I'm thinking, fucking hell, you know, like you're doing like an hour and 45 minute spot improvised like comedy and you don't, they don't want to know and it plays like a massive mind game yeah. and you're trying to impress these people all the time the different promoters around the country they still don't want to know that's fair enough that's up to them that's, you know they, they book who they want to book and that, but it makes you think well what what, what what am I doing wrong do you know what I mean I'm, I'm, I'm storming my audiences what am I doing wrong so you carry on doing the five-minute open spots down in Peterborough for fuck all, you know. Mm. You're doing like a, an, um, a, an opening spot down in Bristol. I did one one Friday night, drove all the way to Bristol for for like uh, 110 quid. It cost me 95 in, in <laughs> petrol and food and fucking drink. But you know what I mean? I thought to myself, well, rather than me sitting on my ass in our yeah. house, yeah. get off your ass and do your trade. Yeah. Mm. And you never know what can come from it, no. And that's what that's what I basically I was, I've been doing. And, and then it, the, the, the absolute bottom came... In 2019, I'd written Forgiveness, I'd, I'd rehearsed Forgiveness, and I'd done <clears throat> a couple of um, previews of it. And this promoter from down south in Essex, I think it was, he asked me to go and, and take part in this comedy competition at this really like low level um, uh, uh, festival in, in Chel- Chelmsford, I think it was. He lord, it was fucking awful. Do you know what I mean? And um, and there, uh, there was no fee on it. Just the you know, just the promise that if you if you won this competition, you'd get two hundred quid. And the way the way he was putting it across to me was like that we've was all like, been there, man. We've all been there. Yeah, but I mean, I've been like, doing but you've it, been doing it for, for thirty, 30, years. 30 yeah. odd years, yeah, yeah. and I was you know I'm st- 
And so I went there, and the, 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 and I came nowhere. And the, the two lads that it was, there was a joint thing, and the, the 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 two lads who won it was one lad. Uh, he was a comedian, but he he'd actually come to see me the the year before in Edinburgh when I did Northern Monkey. And uh, he he told me that I'd inspired him to start comedy again, right? And the other lad, bless him, was was he was autistic, um, and he'd only been doing comedy five weeks. And I thought to myself, fuck me, uh, <laughs> I can't beat somebody who's been going five weeks, and I can't beat somebody who I'd inspired to start comedy again. And I got on the train to go home the following day, and I thought this madness has to fucking stop, man. You know the circuit isn't humiliating you. You're humiliating you. Mm. I'm humiliating myself. Yeah. And it was strange because I made that decision. That's it. I'm not gonna. You know, I've 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 got off my ass and I've proved how much this job means to me. And none of them want to know. And I can't get a gig on the comedy circuit. And you know, I can't get a gig in the main clubs like the uh, Top Secret or the Comedy Store or whatever. You know what I mean? And I. And I just thought, no, enough, <laughs> just enough. Do you know what I mean? And strangely, strangely enough, as I was on that train going home, I, I, I just looked. At the, I got a, this this thing on Facebook, a notification, and and it was the right to hate. And and it had been on like nine thousand views for about a year. Your poem, mm. yeah, nine thousand views for a year, and then all of a sudden I looked. It's going up to 15,000 in about an hour. And by, by the time I got off the train at Redka, it was like 25,000, right? And then it was off. Mm. And for like two weeks or whatever, three weeks before Edinburgh, it had like nearly a million views because it went viral twice. That was the first time it went viral. And I thought to myself, no. And that's and it was weird. It, once again, it's based in the spiritual, but like once I made the decision that that, that was it, I wasn't going to humiliate myself by doing these five and seven and ten minute spots for nothing or 15 minutes at the start for, for 50 quid, like, you know, 150 mile away. Once I'd made that decision not to do that, all of a sudden the right to hit just started to build up a dynamic of its own. And then enough, we went to Edinburgh. And then, of course, after when I took forgiveness to Edinburgh that year, and it, it was just critically acclaimed across the board. And then, and then, see, so it, it, and now I feel as though. Like I'm not bothered whether I, whether I do the comedy circuit or not now. Do you know what I mean? Because it's never it's never given me anything. You know, some people have have been downright awful. You know, uh, but I and said bad things. But I I'm not bothered about that because I I don't I try not to concentrate on the people who knock. Although as comedians, you'll know yourself. You do, don't you? Mm. Do you know what I mean? You always concentrate on. You could have like a room full of people loving you, and then one or two people not laughing, and you'll concentrate on those two rather than the all the rest. But I try not to concentrate on on the negatives and and just concentrate on the positives. And now I feel as though, well, I you know, I've got a a tour, but it's even more than that. You see, because like last August. I got a phone call off my agent, Michael. He'd come back into the the frame. And uh, he said, I'll put you in for this movie, for the lead role. 
have you? I can't say at this moment in time, right, who the director is, right? Mm. It's one of the most iconic British directors ever. I'll put you in for the lead role. So we got the feedback. Oh, yeah, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so, knows what he can do, blah, blah, blah. We're not really bothered. And then all of a sudden, it just changed. My mate, he's a, a, a psychic. Tony Cole, I call him, who was armed robber, right, from Middlesbrough. Psychic, <laughs> a psychic taxi driver. <laughs> fucking unbelievable, right? And this is no, no I don't lie, but you laugh, right? He's as funny as fuck anyway, right? Proper, rough-assed, smoggy, but a taxi driver. Armed robber. Got put away for armed robbery, right? And he started hearing these things. And when I was at Edinburgh, he was saying, you're going to have a Hollywood film director and you contact you. And, he, and I did. Right? <laughs> so he was telling me, uh, you, it doesn't matter. When, when I got this, this, Michael told me I was up for this movie. Tony was saying, uh, doesn't matter, they're going to want you. Right? They're gonna, this other Irish fellow was called Eddie. He was, he was the same, they're going to want you. Long story short, right? Just before I got the phone call from Comedy Unleashed, I went off for the last casting and I've got a part in this fucking movie, this major British movie. So I've got like, I tidied myself up, I'd rehearsed my act, I'd started getting small spots and stuff just leading up to backyard comedy, did backyard comedy, Got a standing ovation for a, a about a minute and a half. Got on my house. Yeah, order. I got fucking tired of standing at the end there, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, that's what you get with talent, son. You know what I mean? <laughs> got all my house sorted. Landed a part in a fucking major British movie that we start filming this month. And now I'm on a 30-day tour. And it's just fucking unbelievable. And I think myself, well, I'm not saying I'm bigger than the comedy circuit, but do I need that shit? Do I need the the five? Do I need to try and prove myself, you know, on five and ten minute open spots, trying to get? Please give me a gig. Please give me a gig. I'll suck your dick for a gig. Please. <laughs> you, never, you never did that to me, mate. No, 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 no. That, well, that's why I, I was a wanna, comedy promoter. I don't want to stay, stay right I don't want to rush a nuclear missile in. <laughs> right? Do you know? And I just think myself, you know. In all the years leading up to this, they gave me nothing. Chris, you don't even need to think about it anymore, man. Well, it, but I do, you see, because I'm, I'm... This is your shot. Yeah, yeah but this it is, is your it shot is, and you just got to fucking take it. It is my shot and it is my shot. I mean, th I mean, this is another... And you know, honestly, right, I'm, I'm not kidding you, right? You won't believe this, right? Eric Clapton fucking emailed me. Mm. <laughs> I got like, fuck me. Oh, do you know what? It, when I heard about that, because he watches Trigonometry... I was obviously delighted with you, for you. I was like, "What the fuck hasn't he emailed me?" No, he, he, I don't think he watches Trigonometry. All right, right. thanks, He's, mate. He, he <laughs> just watches Chris McGlade. <laughs> yeah. No, there's, there's, a, there's a there's a guy. Unbelievable, right? mate. There's, there's, a, there's a, a no gratitude these there's days. An, there's an acquaintance, right? Yeah. I have, and he liked my stuff. So he's on. Uh, oh, what's that? What's that? Um, other social network forum? TikTok. I, no, not TikTok. Instagram. It's, no, it's not Parler. Telegram. Telegram. Yeah. Yeah. He's big on Telegram. He has a massive following. He's a free speech advocate and all this, you know. And I sent him, I'd seen Clapton do this interview, right? 
and he was telling people how the the jab, the COVID jab, had affected his hands, mm. and he got really emotional. And he mentioned this chap, <clears throat> so I thought, well, okay, and I'll I'll because this chap is big on Telegram, and he's you know an advocate. He likes free speech. He came in the backyard. Yeah. It was only the night you, you and Anton did. So I, I sent him some of my stuff, and he loved it. And like Clapton liked it as well, you see. So I said, would you ask Eric if he wanted to come to the gig? Well, he, he messaged me back and he said, uh, Eric said he'd be absolutely honoured to come to your gig. I'm like, fucking Eric Clapton, be honoured to come to my gig. I'm like, you know, wanking on it. <laughs> Slow hand, you know what I mean? Likes my stuff. And it's like, and on the night of the gig, on the day of the gig, Clapton messaged me, emailed me and said, uh, because of COVID and everything, he didn't want to take the risk of coming to a, a packed mm. comedy thing. Fair enough. But he said, we'll definitely meet further on down the road, which is one of his songs. And like, I'm thinking, like, all this doesn't happen to me. And so it's like, like my dad died in, I finished in Billy Elliot in 2011. My dad had been murdered in 2011. If you know, and I'd went, went and I'd finished his political campaign in Redcar and everything. And uh, I'd come out of Billy Elliot and all that, and there was nothing. And that's when I, I'd spent all those years, 12 years, begging top agents and all these people, please like, come and see me and all this. And I came close to off the curb offering me a spot somewhere in Essex. And then they pulled it and put this Irish chap in instead. Um, and I'd, and I'd done all that for the best part of 12 years, right? And then after all these things happened last year, I, I don't feel as though I have, to, I have to sort of like humble myself or, or beg anymore. I mean, like I said, I, I don't know if the tour is going to do anything. I mean, you, you've you got like 300,000 people and like subscribing to your channel. If, if 7,000 of those people like decided they like what they see and, and they, they want to buy tickets, that's great. That's job done. This interview, that's great. You know what I mean? It's, it's like every time you see a celebrity on a telly, on Jonathan Ross or whatever, they're always fucking selling something, aren't they? Do you know mm. what I mean? And I suppose that's what I'm doing here today. I'm trying to sell the show, but I want people to know that no matter how bad you think things are, if you keep that belief... It might be in God, it might be in spirit, it might be just in you, right? It might just be in yourself. It, it, but if you keep that f faith and belief in yourself, and fuck me, I'll tell you what it was, man was like this, like stretched to the limit, and I almost lost it, but I didn't lose it quite. And if you just keep it, then you never know what's right. And, and I am living proof of that, you know what I mean? And yes, so that's why I've... I've come, I mean, I love you two at the bits, but that's why I've come on to this thing again because I want, I've, I've built up this like social media following now and people say, oh, you haven't half inspired me through my darkest days and all of this, you know, through lockdown, you're making those live videos and they made sense to me and, you know, you, you, you didn't mind laying yourself bare and showing us what's and all. Like you say, that comes down to being honest, I suppose. And people have gained comfort from that and that, that, that makes me feel very proud, you know what I mean? Yes. So. If I can inspire people, you know, to carry on going through my story, you know, and I, and I have, you know, I've, I've scraped the, bo the bottom of the barrel and stuff. 
But if I if I can inspire people to carry on through my story, then then that that's all fair and well, you know. And it's not about the comedy circuit like beating me or me beating the comedy circuit. It's just you know, Chris Francis will tell you a story about a mutual friend of ours, a comedian who who summed up the comedy circuit perfectly. Do you remember Javier? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm gonna. T- I'll talk about that. Do you know? You know what your story reminds me of. I remember reading Stephen Fry's autobiography. Have you seen it? No. Have you read it? He talks about Star Trek because he's a huge Star Trek fan, and he relays a story from Star Trek where Spock and um, Captain Kirk were looking out over the galaxy, and Kirk looked at Spock and he said, "You know something? You know something, Spock? There is somebody at this point in the galaxy saying the three most beautiful words in the world. Please help me." Yeah. And that's it. The moment where you reach out and you go, things have got to change. I can't carry on like this. I can't do this any longer. I want to change. Things change. It, it, honestly, and that's uh, like, I resonate with that massively. Because, I mean, like I said, that's happened to me twice in my life. I mean, I had a massive spiritual experience in Gran Canaria. I'm not going to go into it now because I'd be here for five days talking about it. The ramifications of it, like, have, have left its mark on my life, like, massively. People can, people can scoff uh, about spir- all things spiritual. And I get that. Do you know what I mean? I get that. Most people go without... You know, I can touch this and it's Valua and I can drink this tea and it's nice and, you know, I can see you and I can taste this. But, like, when something happens that you can't see, touch, feel, hear, smell or whatever, right, but you know it's happened, uh, the only way I can describe it to you, it's like, it's like a, your, your clock's ticking like this. And all of a sudden it stops and then it starts ticking like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And everything but everything is different. And that's that's what happened to me. And and I have got this spirituality and I have been in that position twice in my life where I have asked something that I can't see, feel, hear or whatever. Just help me. And and on both occasions, it's come from Trump's. It's come up Trump's for me. And I can't, I'm not going to turn my back on it. <clears throat> and I'm not going to deny it. It's very personal to me. It's based in a lot of things. It's based in the love of my family, my grandchildren. I look at it now, you know, and my grandchildren's great-grandma, like I say, she passed away last week. And my grandchildren uh, were upset about it. And they saw like once, once a week or whatever. And they see me nearly every day. And last week I thought to myself, you bastard. If you had to kill yourself, how upset would the grandkids have been? And I thought to myself yesterday, no, I want to live. 
I want to fucking live. I don't want to die no more. And I don't want to go and shaving anymore. And I don't want to go scruffy anymore. And I don't want to, like, you know, let myself go and neglect things anymore. I want to live. Because you've got things to do, man. This is what I was going to say to you about the circuit. It's like a friend of ours said to us, this is why it matters. Because there's a lot of people watching this in the comedy world, but it's not just the comedy world. It applies everywhere in life. So the circuit, if you've seen Batman, it's like that pit that no one's ever climbed out of. <laughs> Bane was the one. And he said, you guys are one of the few people that ever get to climb out of it. Yeah. That's all the comedy circuit is. Now, it's not true that he didn't give you anything. He gave you the skill. You you had the chance to practice, to get better. The comedy circuit didn't give me the... The, the, the doing the comedy Because, did. you see, there's, there's, two, there's, two, there's two circuits, isn't there? Yes. Mm. There's the circuit... I learned my trade in stag shows, working men's clubs, strippers, some of the things I've fucking seen and done on the circuit. I, I remember working in this uh, place, the Maid Marion Centre in Nottingham, right? Or the Robin Hood Centre. It was the Maid Marion Suite. I worked with two strippers <laughs> on a Wednesday night. It was fucking awful. <laughs> they left all the sex toys on the fucking floor. And it was like a scene from horror film, like this black dildo was fucking, like a finger was crawling across the stage like that, you know what I mean? Oh. <laughs> I remember doing a, I remember doing a stag, a stag do in uh, Doncaster on a Sunday night. And I'm not lying to you, at the end of this thing, all the lads have a whip round to get one of the lads up, right? And the strippers make a bit of an ass of him, like, you know what I mean? And uh, they got this gadget up. Started stripping him off, you know, they're all doing dancing around, you know what I mean, taking his shirt off and all that, all the lads going crazy. One stripper got this leg like that, and this stripper got that leg like that, and like like that, you know Careful. what I mean? <laughs> Pulling his shirt, the shirt and stuff off, do you know what I mean? His, his shoes and socks off. The first stripper grabbed all this bloke's shoe, pulled it, and the fucking leg came with it, right? He had a prosthetic leg. <laughs> so she stood right. <laughs> With this gadgie's leg with a fucking shoe on it and a sock, right? Well, we were... Up, the whole room was killing themselves laughing, right? And it, and that's where I learnt my trade. Yeah. Mm. Do you have a website or do you plan to have a website? Because if you do, then EasyDNS is a company for you. EasyDNS is the perfect domain name registrar provider and web host for you. They have a track record of standing up for their clients, whether it be cancel culture, de-platform attacks, or overzealous government agencies. He knows about that. So will you in a second. <laughs> EasyDNS have rock-solid network infrastructure and fantastic customer support. They're in your corner no matter what the world throws at you, unless it's your ex-girlfriend, in which case you're on your own. <laughs> you know about that. <laughs> Move your domains and websites over to EasyDNS right now all you've got to do is go to easydns.com forward slash triggered. That's easydns.com forward slash triggered. Use our promo code, which is also triggered, and get 50% off the initial purchase. Sign up for their newsletter, Access of Easy, which tells you everything you need to know about technology, privacy, and censorship. There was a, a video company came in for me years and years ago. I'd only been a comedian for five years. And they made this... Uh, this video called True Blue. And it was absolutely, I mean, I was awful. You know, I wasn't ready for it at all. Do you know what I mean? 
You know, like when you see these these football pundits and they're talking about, you know, should this club go up from the Championship into the Premier League and all the rest of it, right? And you think, well, no, you want to you, you want to go in the Premier League, you know. Well, that's where I was. Like, I was well, I wasn't even like Championship. You know what I mean? I was like maybe third or fourth division. And I suppose this video company were trying to put me in the top flight. And when I look at it, I was nowhere near ready. And it, and it, and it, I mean, you got to understand on that stag circuit, the one as racist as you can possibly be, the one yeah. as sexist as misogynistic as sick, the fucking lot. Do you know what I mean? Because it's hard whether the whether the audience is black or white. That's 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 the nature of a stag comedian. Do you know what I mean? And that's what it was, and it was fucking awful. And they wanted they wanted to do this video in a theatre in London and they wanted to add, it was alien to me. They that want, would be quite a fucking <laughs> show. They wanted, a, they wanted a bus and audience in, right? They wanted a bus and audience in. Let's get some northerners in. No, yeah. I don't know. And, I, I, and I had this, I had this like mad, well, I still got it because I love Teesside. Do you know what I mean? I love fucking sure. Butter and Redka where, where I live. I just love them. Do you know what I mean? It's my home. Well, I said, no, I want to do it at the Dormans Club in Middlesbrough. And the Dormans Club had had, um, oh, what do you call it? Bob uh, Monkhouse and, and, and other people there. That's what I'm going to do. So we did it there. And all it was like two coaches from Redka came over to Middlesbrough. They went in this club. The people from Middlesbrough took an exception. Well, two, two coaches from Redka went in. It was the first time. It was a full-scale riot. And it was the first time that CS Gas had been used in Teesside at my fucking video shoot. <laughs> <laughs> and we got to cobble it up. And we did it again because my agent at the time was from South Wales and we cobbled it up. We did it again, this place down in um, in South Wales. And it was just awful. The video was fucking awful. <clears throat> I'm not proud of it at all. But I wasn't ready for it. But that's my background. Yes. Then you got the comedy circuit. You're what you what you would call the comedy circuit. Yes. Do you know what I mean? I There's do know what you mean. Like five comedians or four comedians and an MC and this, that, and the other. And no, you know, people echo, but if they do, then you know, echo too much, you get chucked out and all the rest of it. Do you know what I mean? It's a complete different beast. Yes. Yeah. Where yeah. I'm from. I mean, I, when I, I went to the gig with Alfie all those years ago down to Exeter, he had this like television theme idea about me and him, like, swapping. So, like, I'd go on that circuit that he did in London in the southeast or whatever, and he'd do, like, the clubs in the northeast. I thought it was a great idea. I mean, I would love to see him. I, I've seen comedians on that comedy circuit, the London, like, London-esque kind of comedy circuit, because they're putting more and more of these comedy nights on in working men's clubs now in the north. And I've seen some of these like circuit comedians that go into working men's club, and you can see the colour like drain out of them when they see, <laughs> you know, because they're really uncompromising. Yeah. Like you know, like like places to work. Yeah. Look, my point is, you've done all that. Yeah, yeah. You've done all that. You've done all that, and now you've got your shot, and you've got a thirty-day tour, and you've got a part in the movie, and I couldn't be happier for you. Well, uh, listen. As I said to you before, when we did trigonometry last year, at that time I had the show in front of me, and and that was it. I didn't. We didn't have any more plans to do forgiveness anywhere else, right? And that was that. And then we did it, and now I've got the opportunity. Now all I know is 
I've got a part in a major British movie with an iconic British director and I'm on a 30-day tour and I've got some other little bits and pieces coming in on the after-dinner speaking circuit. So I've got money coming in. Job done. Thank the Lord. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I've got a flies appetite at the best of times, but I do like to eat. Do you know what I mean? Beyond that, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if if the part in the movie is going to lead to anything. I don't know if the thirty day tour is going to lead to anything. But as I say, because it came out of the blue, I just feel as though all of this, if you, if I was to talk from a spiritual point of view, I feel all of this is meant to be, and I and I honestly feel as though. It's not the end. This person, who, this medical person who, who, from abroad, who's, you know, uh, who's come in and, and give me this uh, opportunity financially, uh, I think they want me to to, to take it to America. Mm. They want to. T- they want me to take it to uh, uh, Australia and New Zealand, you know. And I mean, I'll do those things. Do you know what I mean? Of course, I'll do those things. But that's in the future, you know. I just want to get back to performing regularly, mm-hmm. to writing, because mm-hmm. because when I'm not doing anything, I can't see the point in writing, you know. Yep, yep. Um, it's like being a, a being a ship in the doldrums. You have got no wind in your sails. You need, but once you get the wind in your sails and you're off, then you, then you, you're more creative, aren't you? So I just want to I just want to like do these things, get my creativity back, and. And let's take it from there. And I and I hope this is the thing. Uh, Middlesbrough had a football striker called Bernie Slaven, and he came to see the show. And I'd, I've only had five gigs this year, and one of them I did a performance of of forgiveness in my hometown of Redcar, and I raised money for uh, these two homeless charities. Mm. Bernie Slaven came, and he said to me after the show, "Have you seen Ricky Gervais's Afterlife?" And I said, no, I haven't. I don't, I don't watch telly. You know, I never watch telly. And he said, well, I watched your show. And he said, uh, and it was very similar to that, you know. Well, I, I'd, I'd never seen Afterlife. I don't even know what it is. And then this other chap came over and he went, oh, yo, Chris. I said, well, he went, your fucking, your fucking T-sides, Ricky Gervais, yo. He said, have you seen fucking Afterlife? Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I haven't. No. He said, that's what it's like. He said, it's fucking wonderful, right? And that meant a lot to me because, I mean, I have a lot of. T- I don't think Rick, Ricky Gervais is a better comedian than me. He's got more profile, obviously. You know what I mean? He's outspoken, and I love that. I love the fact that he champions common sense. Mm-hmm. That he won't. He won't bow down to the the woke brigade or the PC brigade. But then again, he's big enough, you know, not not to bo- worry or bother about that. You know what I mean? But I would love like somebody like that to come and see the show. Or I was in this article in the Telegraph. Uh, on Christmas, just before Christmas last year, and and I was like sandwiched in between Johnny Depp, Ellen DeGeneres, John Cleese, and J.K. Rowling. These are all people who'd been censored, right, in two thousand and twenty-one. And I thought myself, wouldn't it be great if John Cleese thought, or J.K. Rowling thought, I want to know this person. I'll go and I'll go and go and see this show because all it takes. What I'm saying to you is, all it would take is for one of these people to see it and think, hang on. I can do this with it or I can do that with it. 
you know, I maybe take it to another level. You just you just never know, do you? And so that's what that's that's something I'm hoping, but I have no expectations for it because I just think the way it's all happened, it'll just be what it'll be, and I'm happy for it to be what it'll be. Chris, this is all incredible, but I think you're discounting the power of that decision you made where you said no more. That's where it all comes from to me. And that's a really powerful thing about this story is someone who was at the bottom, who felt they had no way out, realized that they were doing it to themselves and making a choice that it wasn't going to be like that anymore. Mm, So if you keep committing to that choice, I get that. I get that completely, right? <laughs> but no no amount of shaving and getting your hair cut and coloured right is going to make a doctor from a foreign country give you a five. No, five, that's trigonometry, mate. I mean, that's... that's <laughs> I mean, and We're like, being cryptic about this person, by the way, because they've asked not to be identified. identified. Look, yeah. you're in a great place. It's absolutely fucking brilliant to see. I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy for you. You're going to smash the tour. Everybody go and make sure you buy a ticket. We'll put the link in the description. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris. Chris McGlade Chris McGlade the, 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 the tickets are at Chris I don't even know the Chris <laughs> this is how professional he is well yeah. I, l- listen I'm a, I'm a 57 he's a great comedian tech wise not so much shit, shit, I'm shit. Yeah. it's uh, it's uh, Michael said because he's he's drummed it into me today right Michael said the tickets are at chrismcgladecomedy.com Perfect. And if you want to, right, so, and if you want to click. And if they're not, we'll put the correct link in the description. And if you want to click and subscribe, I'm back on Facebook, two accounts, and I'm on Twitter. But I don't do Instagram. Perfect. Chris, uh, we've always got one question at the end. Uh, We'll ask you a couple of questions from our supporters, uh, from our supporters, for our supporters. Uh, But before we do, what is the one thing we're not talking about that we really should be? Once again, class. You know? Because you see, I look at it this way. I am a very working class comedian and a working class man. And I and I don't I don't think that working class comedians of that working class style, right, get a a fair rub of the green. When we done Backyard last year, the guys at Comedy Unleashed uh, said we want to put like a Northern Working Men's Club night on at Backyard. Can you sort of like five, four or five comedians and an MC? And I said, yeah, great. And I, I said to some of the lads on the circuit, you know, do you want to be a part of this? And like, let's see if we can change things. Because it seems to me that the only kind of comedy that these people who dominate and control comedy want to put on is is their version of comedy. And there's millions of people out there who don't subscribe to that point of view or that taste in comedy. Do you know what I mean? And it, oh, for me, it comes down to discrimination of, of that working class style of comedy. So that's, and Pete, like I said to you before, the last, and I, w- I went into the fine ends of a fart about, com- uh, about class last time, but like nobody likes to talk about class, do they? They get embarrassed about it. They feel uncomfortable about it. You know, one of the things that I was really proud of with with forgiveness went into the Soho Theatre. It 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 went across everything. It cut across class divide, race divide, religion, everything. Do you know what I mean? Until it was cancelled. But even so, I mean, when we when we went to the but that's the point you're making. That's the only reason yeah. I made that quip yeah. is that 
Yes, it was until it came across the tastemakers of that world who, because of those reasons, I've, didn't I've, want to I've carry got to, on. I've got to say this, though, because the Soho Theatre cancelled me out because they said, oh, it's anti-Semitic, you know, the Soho, the, 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 the poem, The Right to Hate. I was contacted by these two chaps and we become friends. And uh, one of them, he founded the campaign against anti-Semitism and uh, and then he founded this movement called the Israel Advocacy Movement. And the other chap, Alexander, he's like, like he's, I don't know if it's second in command, I don't know if that's the right term, but the, the work hand in glove kind of thing, you know. They hound, like these these guys are like proper, well, Israeli advocates and the Zionists and Jewish, obviously, you know. And just leading up to me doing the uh, backyard, they'd seen the stuff about, you know, this anti-Semitic. So they'd done all the thing and they'd gone through all the tweets and blah, 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 you know. And they'd seen the stuff I'd put about the Rothschilds and banking and all this, you know. So they wanted to do this interview with me, right? And I will get emotional over this one. They wanted to do this interview with me. And I said, right, okay, and I'll do the interview, right? And then we're having trouble, the logistics of either me going on to London or them coming up to Redcar. So I, I said, right, I'll tell you what we'll do. Come and see the show. Come and see the show, Backyard, when forgiveness goes in, and then we'll do your interview, right? So they came along to the show. And with like 300 other people, they stood and applauded at the end. Wonderful. After the show, the top guy, Joseph, he said to me, that was absolutely amazing. He said, you've actually changed the way I look at things. And I said, in what way? And he said, well, you made me realise that people can say anti-Semitic things, right? But not be anti-Semitic. They can say them out of ignorance. They can say them out of a lack of education. I said, well, I'm glad you appreciate that. I said, you know, I'm a very intelligent man, probably not the most educated people. I left school when I was 16 years old, went straight into a steel mill. Jermaine, my professors and my lecturers were people like Ernie Buckton and Colin Eiley and Terry Taggart. You know what I mean? Stock takers, like rough-ass steel men, you know what I mean? I said, so, but I've tried to educate myself over the course of my life. And I've had questions and all this, you know, and I've tried to answer the questions in my own mind. And and I explained that to him and he said, well, that's what I mean. But then the other guy with him, Alexander, he said to me, well, I was sat there and I thought to myself, but there's another aspect to this as well. And I said, what's that? And he went, shouldn't we forgive the anti-Semites? And that was like, fucking hell. Like, these people are, like, committed to the cause of Israel. They've bashed and attacked anybody who they think is anti-Semitic. And yet I, I'd kind of, like, cut through that and made them see things in a different way. And we've become friends now. Alexander offered me to come down to London and have dinner with him and his family for the Sabbath. Uh, they're going to get me what they call a Yidlid. <laughs> like, I want an orange one though, because yeah. orange is my favourite colour. And they've endorsed my show. 
on on Twitter, telling everybody to come and see the show. Now, the show has cut has like cut through a lot of things, and it's encouraged people to forgive, and it's encouraged people to forgive themselves, and it's kind of like you know built bridges again. But now it's like changing things on like a massive political level as well. You know, these guys realise I'm not anti-Semitic. They realise that, you know, I'm growing, evolving, changing. I said to them, you know, I hope I'm still growing and evolving and changing on the day I die. I hope I'm still learning stuff on the last breath. I hope I've learned something. Do you know what I mean? Yep. And so they they realise, you know, I might have said stuff that's anti-Semitic on on Twitter, but then again, we're, in, we're encouraged by our thoughts and feelings mm. on social media, conversations that you'd have over one time, have over the back fence or when you're washing the car with your neighbour or in the shop with the queue. You, you're encouraged to have all those throwaway conversations on, on, on social media now where they're all stored and people can think, oh, well, you know, you said this in 2009, you know, this is what... But, like, all you're doing is, like, using like social media is a soundboard for the things that you're thinking at that particular time. And these two guys saw that, do you know what I mean? And they realised there was no malice. You see, so when I when Alex put that tweet on Twitter, I sent it to the director of the theatre at the Soho Theatre, mm. do you know what I mean? Not to be clever or to piss up his back or anything like that, do you know what I mean? But to say, look, and I said to him, look, if we can work together in future, get it on. Because these are two guys are massive in the Jewish community. They're massive in that thing. They know that it's, you know, that it's not anti-Semitic. They've seen the show. You know, don't don't let that progressive cancel culture stop because, you see, and this is the crux of it all, that cancel culture and that political correctness is dividing people and ultimately conquering them has to fucking stop. Right? Because otherwise we're all going to be at each other's throats all the time. And if and if my show can go some way to dismantling that cancel culture and to be and to make people like Joseph and Alexander look at things in a different way, do you know what I mean? Then I think that's a fucking even more than making people forgive. That's a massive thing, you know. A massive, massive thing. All power to you, Chris. God bless you, man. Thanks for coming back on. Thank you for watching and listening. We'll see you very soon. I mean, it probably won't be quite (laughs) like this, but it will be another episode uh, or or show. They all go out at 7 p.m. UK time. And for those of you who do like your trigonometry on the go, it's also available as a podcast. Take care and see you soon, guys. <laughs> I, 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 honestly, right, I, I set up that because I was desperate for finances in 2020, right? And then I thought to myself, what the fuck are you doing? Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.